welcome to episode 1430 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast brought to you by Fangraphs and our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined, as always, by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Doing all right. How are you? I'm doing all right. You told me you were going to a Mariners-Reds game on Thursday, and you didn't sound super psyched about that matchup, but I said, maybe Kyle Lewis will hit a homer, and, and then Kyle Lewis did. hit a homer. Yeah, that must have been fun. Yeah, that part was fun. It was Justin Dunn's Major League mm, debut, which not was as fun. less fun, but <laughs> but Major League debuts are always at least a little fun, because uh, it's, it's an exciting thing, and... Mm-hmm. Um, Perhaps were, too exciting in this case. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he did seem a bit nervous. Um, he had some trouble locating, but yeah, it was you know, uh, Don Donnie Walton got his first major league hit. Mm-hmm. So you know, the Mariners are not good, but they should be better in a couple years. And some of the guys who might help with that. We're doing some stuff, so that's that's always exciting. That could be fun at the tail end of a terrible team's terrible season. Oh, my God. <laughs> Maybe things can sort of look up and that you get a glimpse of some yeah. guys who might be around when the team is good again. And if you get to be at a big league debut, you always get to say, I saw that guy's big league debut, so yeah. that's always fun. So, yeah, there's a silver lining there. Yeah, well, and, you know, I, I think uh, – Kyle Lewis has a lot to do to demonstrate that he is going to stick in the majors. He's probably at best a fourth outfielder, but considering that his knee is probably filled with hamburger meat (laughs) and it seems like it was being held together by paste, him being there at all is really cool. And to see him uh, hit home runs and and get a couple other hits besides is uh, it's neat. So. Mm Yeah, Yeah. Dunn lasted two outs, which was also how long Rich Hill lasted in his very brief comeback. What's up with that? Now he has an MCL strain, so Mm. I'm guessing he's probably going to be done for the year. It seems bad. More Rich Hill. And he he comes back just long enough to remind us that we missed him, and then he disappears again. So it's advanced age and fragility, and I don't know whether we'll ever see an extended run of Rich Hill again but i hope we do because i yeah. love rich hill and as long as he wants to keep trying to extend this thing i want him to keep doing that and want him to be around baseball so i hope one of these comeback attempts takes yeah yeah that would be nice to see also daniel palka got a hit <laughs> yes i uh i heard about that i i don't think that this well i'll just ask you does this qualify as uh, sufficiently hitterish for you to feel better? I don't think it does. Was it a single? Yes. yes. Was it a ground ball? Yes. Was it a ball that was fielded by the second baseman? Yes. Was it a ball that he barely beat the throw on? Yes. But it was a single, and his average is up to healthy 35 right now. Almost double what it was the last time we talked, so (laughs) things are looking up. Well, I guess the good news for Daniel Polka is that he gets to face Mariners pitching for a series, so maybe (laughs) things will be on the up and up for him. Mm -hmm. Who's to say? Yeah. 35. He he got like a standing ovation from his teammates when he got that single, which... 
probably like I'm sure he's happy to get the support, but also like <laughs> if you're getting your teammates on the top step applauding yeah. because you got an infield single, essentially, I guess it technically got to the outfield, but <laughs> it's not a huge accomplishment. You you no. kind of want that to be a routine thing that you don't necessarily need to get applause for. But on the other hand, maybe we should applaud every hit. Every hit is an achievement in the yeah. major leagues. Pretty tough to get hits. So maybe we're just not celebrating all of the singles enough. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've said before, I th- it feels impossible that anyone ever gets a hit. It also feels impossible that any pitcher ever gets a strikeout, so I don't quite know how I score those things in my head, but um, baseball feels impossible, and then it isn't, so that's kind of mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you you do want in moments like that, I would rather, if it were me, to not have people say, like, hey, it's kind of <laughs> like, uh, like how... When I write a thing, people are like, you wrote a thing. I'm like, yeah, look, I know. Okay. I know. Thank you. And it's not, it's nice. It's a nice thing. And I should, I should be like, Hey, thanks. But my inside reaction is like, can you not? Freaking just so yeah right so we are going to talk for most of this episode to the very voluble will leach who joins us to talk about dave dombrowski and about what dave dombrowski's firing says about how teams are operating these days talked about that a bit earlier this week but really get into it a bit more here he wrote about that for new york magazine this week And we also talk about the Cardinals because Will's the Cardinals guy. And I realized that we just have sort of snubbed the Cardinals this year for reasons that we will get into in the interview, but they are deserving of some conversation. And so we give them what they deserve. And I realized it had been quite a while since we had had a guest on the podcast, close to a month, I think, (laughs) which is unusual, not bad. I think it uh, reflects the fact that we like talking to each other. We're self-sufficient here at Effectively (laughs) Wild, but also it's nice to bring in other people to talk about other things at times. So fun conversation with Will, as always. Just a couple quick things while we're on the subject of teams trying to win and investing in their rosters, and also while we're trying to check the boxes of teams that we have probably given short shrift to this season, wanted to talk about the Braves and Dallas Keuchel for Mm -hmm. a minute because he's been excellent for them. That was the subject of a post by Tony Wolf on Fangraphs on Friday, which you should all check out. But the Braves have to be very satisfied with their signing of Dallas Keuchel. There are probably a bunch of teams out there that are sort of wishing that they had signed Dallas Keuchel. Granted, the Craig Kimbrell signing has gone about as poorly as that could possibly go. But one out of two on free agents signed (laughs) way later than they should have been signed. And really, he's kind of big for the Braves. We we haven't talked about the Braves, I guess, that much because they haven't been in that tight a race. They have some standout players, but not like an MVP contender probably, and they just sort of, everything's kind of gone smoothly for them. I don't know. There hasn't been controversy. They haven't blown a big lead or anything, and so we've just sort of not talked a whole lot about the Braves, but they've been on a really great run lately, and Keuchel's been about as good as he's been for years and years now. Mm-hmm. And Ronald Acuna is one home run and four stolen bases away from 40-40 right now, <gasps> which is pretty exciting. Yay. So Braves baseball, pretty good these days. Catch the fever. Mm-hmm. I imagine, well, we could like we could even just go through these here uh, playoff teams. I bet the Yankees wouldn't mind the services of Dallas Keuchel right now. Nope. The Astros are like, we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're very 
very <laughs> invested in pitcher wins, apparently, but we're fine. <laughs> you know, the Dodgers are doing all right. The Braves have him, so they're pretty content there. The Twins mm-hmm. are probably sitting there going, that Dallas Keuchel, he sure would be useful. Oh, yes. Very uh, much so. You know. Phillies could use Dallas oh, Keuchel. Yeah. So it's just uh, it, it's a tricky thing to when you're when we're evaluating what individual signings mean for and say about macro trends you know can that can be a tricky business you can over and under react to things as you noted there are sort of pros and cons for specific signings but it i think it does go to show that you know when you identify weaknesses and then try to bolster them it can uh, it can be to your benefit as a baseball team so that's the mm-hmm. thing that people should think about maybe yeah. consider doing sometimes Done. yeah and I get why there wasn't tremendous interest for Keiko, yeah. and maybe he had somewhat unrealistic expectations for the kind of contract he could come in. He was coming off a durable year and a pretty decent year, but not like a star level year. And the way that he pitches is sort of not in vogue in yeah. baseball right now. And I like that he is succeeding despite that. I like that he is sticking with the sinker because, yeah, lots of guys are abandoning the sinker and it makes sense. But if you've got a really great sinker, then you should probably still throw that sinker. And Dallas Keuchel's got a good one and he is getting tons and tons of ground balls. His ground ball rate is back up where it was in his heyday, really, back over 60%. And it's been even higher than that lately. So good for him. Good for the Braves for investing in him. And I guess that goes to show the benefit of signing free agents when you need them. Once the price dropped down to where it was when he eventually signed, there were probably a few other teams that should have been more involved in that conversation. And I think there were reports that the Phillies were, right? And then Keiko came out this week and essentially said that was not the case. Yeah. So. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, you know, with the... As you would expect with the rebounding of his ground ball rate, the homer rate has come down. It's sort of mm-hmm. useful to have a guy who doesn't give up a lot of those at this particular mm-hmm. moment in baseball. So yeah, it's it's always tricky because we, we get some teams that sort of exaggerate or dissemble entirely about the how active they're trying to be in the market. And we, of course, never really know exactly what goes into these. We very rarely get a complete TikTok of um, the teams that don't end up signing a free agent. But yes, I think there are a number of uh, teams out there that kind of wish that that guy and his weird beard were going to be on their (laughs) postseason roster. So. And just to round it out, I think the only real contender that we haven't talked about a whole lot this year, perhaps because we didn't expect them to be contenders, is the Diamondbacks, who yeah. were also the subject of a Fangraphs post on Friday. <laughs> Your staff is really on top of things these days. Yeah. <laughs> Finger yeah. on the pulse. They do a good job. <laughs> yeah. So Ben Clemens wrote about the Diamondbacks and about how they have completely turned over their roster in the last couple of years and how... They went from a team that seemed to be on the verge of selling and tearing it down and rebuilding, and they did a little bit of that, and obviously they let big free agents walk, and they traded Zach Greinke, and yet they are still very much in it. They're three and a half games back in the wild card race as we speak, but their run differential is better than the Mets, better than the Phillies, better than the Brewers by quite a bit in some of those cases. 
And it's been fun to see them turn over their roster and find a bunch of guys. I think the Hazen regime has done a good job at development and at finding people in places that you don't typically expect to find people. And they've made a lot of trades that have worked out pretty well on the whole for them so far. That's fun. And and I guess they are now, it felt like a few years ago, like they were heading for some kind of cliff potentially. And now it really doesn't feel like that. They've kind of done the Brewers rebuild on the fly type thing, which I don't know that that produces as solid a core as the total rebuild does if you do that right. Like the Brewers right now, they don't have a ton of quality homegrown players. They've done a good job at adding them and signing them and trading for them. But that team is not unassailable. But the fact that they went from bad to good without ever really getting terrible or bottoming out, I think there's something to be said for that. Even if you don't come out on the other side with an Astros-style just juggernaut, right? having skipped the three or four really terrible years that the Astros and the Cubs have, that counts for something too. Well, and I think you know when it comes to diagnosing how close to one or the other of those models uh, Arizona is, they're, they're a little bit different than Milwaukee in that they just went through what could end up being sort of a franchise-altering draft, right, where they had yeah, a tremendous true. amount of of both picks and, and draft capital to spend. Uh, we have them, Eric and Kylie have them ranked as the fifth best farm system in baseball mm. at the moment. So they're in a position to contend for a wild card now, and I think that there are things, like you said, that they did at the deadline that, um, despite losing Granke, arguably kept their uh, major league roster sort of at least where it was if it, if it didn't make it better. And they are going to have reinforcements coming from the farm in the next couple of years. Some of their um, prospects are sort of close to major league ready now, and they have exciting young guys too. So I think that they are, I mean, it's a it's a pretty interesting approach and one that I like a lot because it seems to be a good melding if it works. I mean, obviously these prospects yeah. have to pan out, but um, if it should work, it seems like a really compelling mix of the two where you can give your fans baseball that they're not going to feel bad about watching <laughs> yeah. while also, you know, sort of building that young core that we've seen other teams do. Not every team is going to be in a position to have a single draft year that can change the course of their franchise quite like Arizona did. That set of circumstances was pretty unique, but they're, it's a, they're cool. They make me feel good about all the, the Diamondbacks hats I own. I own, <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot of hats. <laughs> Several of them are very brightly colored, and I feel good about it because look at that D-backs team go. Yeah, <laughs> and that trade that they made, the Zach Gallen yeah. Jazz Chisholm trade, which was really fascinating at the time. Yeah, it's obviously way too soon to say who will end up getting the best of that deal, but. Yeah. Gallen having been in the big leagues already and being ready to step onto that roster immediately, he has been great for them. Yeah. It's just since the trade deadline and and Chisholm's been very good for the Marlins too, but in double A, whereas Gallen is doing that in the big leagues now and is probably like their best or second best starting pitcher yeah. immediately, which is cool because that was like a challenge trade. And so far, I guess both teams are probably pretty happy with how it's working out just yeah. in the, the past couple months. But but it's nice when you can make a move like that and reap some rewards from it 
right away. Yeah, it seems like one of the rare times where both sides might end up by virtue of where they are in their respective competitive cycles come away thinking like, hey, we did re- we did really well here. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the Goldschmidt deal too was yeah. one where it was like, okay, I, I get why they're doing this. It's tough to give up a guy like that, but maybe this is the time when you do it and they got a good package of players back. But They've won that deal in 2019, at least. Yeah, for sure. Goldschmidt could rebound and be better, and obviously he's recovered somewhat from his very slow start. But getting Kelly and Weaver and the contributions that they've had and Goldschmidt not looking like his old self, that has worked out really well right away when that was more of a long-term oriented move. And, of course, what they've done with Cattell Marte and picking up Christian Walker and some of these guys who have really blossomed or kind of come out of nowhere. It is a pretty fun team. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. All right. You got anything else? No. I will have uh, I will have prospect thoughts hot from the Arizona Fall League uh, next week. I'm headed down to Phoenix for that uh, next Friday. But other than that, no, I do How not. How is that as a spectator experience? I guess I... I don't know. I've never been before. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I briefly went when I was at scout school, but I wasn't really there for the Arizona Fall League. I think we went to a, a game or two maybe when it overlapped, but I don't really recall how that was because I was so full of anxiety about trying to pretend that I could evaluate baseball <laughs> players with my eyes and nothing else. Well, thankfully, I will not be forced to do that. And if I get confused, I can always... Uh, uh, bother eric about it because uh, yeah. he will obviously be taking in fall league ball too but i don't know i'm excited to to get to see my my first fall league i haven't been yet um cool. i've heard that it's much more mellow than spring training so that makes it immediately appealing to me mm-hmm. all right so we will take a quick break and we'll be right back with will leach Okay, so we are joined now by our pal and man of many bylines, most of which appear these days at New York Magazine and MLB.com, Will Leach. Hey, Will. Sure, an honor. As I, I was saying before we came on, I, this is not just an honor. Being on this podcast, I consider a substantial honor. Like, it is not, <laughs> not just a mere honor. It is substantial honor. I'm having all sorts of insubstantial honors all day. <laughs> this is, in fact, a substantial honor. Oh, well, boy. we're always happy to bestow it upon you. <laughs> so we're here to talk to you about a, a couple things, one of which is the Cardinals. But I figure we probably shouldn't start with the Cardinals, because if I get you going on the Cardinals, we may run out of time <laughs> to talk about anything else. Right. So let's start with what you wrote about for New York Mag this week, which was about Dave Dombrowski, and your column was called Winning Ain't What It Used To Be. So do you want to lay out the thesis, and then we will interrogate it, as the kids say? Yes, I should I should point out that this column, in fact, starts with something about the Cardinals. So, so keep that <laughs> in mind. And ends. <laughs> yes, exactly. It comes back around. But yeah, so basically, you know, obviously, there's been lots of discussion after Dave Dombrowski was fired, uh, of course, less than a year after he won the World Series. And I thought it was fascinating. I kept going back to a quote that was in Tom Verducci's uh, write-up in this in Sports Illustrated. And I mentioned this in the piece. And the, the exact quote is, and, I, and this is something we all understand, he said the team was looking for, quote, a process-oriented architect who can steer the franchise efficiently through a difficult transition toward its next championship team, which 
I, I get it. I get it. Like we all, I watch baseball. We all know how this works. I've read your book. Like I know how this goes. Uh, and I know your book is not exclusively about this, but you know what I mean. We all understand how this goes, but it still felt very, it felt cognitively dissonant to me. The idea that like this guy literally not only just won a world series less than a year ago, but was brought in specifically to go ahead and do what he did, which was to clear out some of the farm system and, uh, and, and win a world series. And while I understand that this is a process to me, you know, we've kind of noticed in the last couple of years as, as uh, front offices have become more and more similar and, and like-minded. I think sometimes people take this like a massive criticism, which is, I, I don't understand that because when Dave Stewart was a general manager, he was different than everyone else, but different in a very bad way. Like just, just being different is not necessarily a bad thing. I think a lot of the front offices that do things are doing things in smart ways, but the, there has been, I'm not the first person to, to mention the idea that actually trying to spend uh, and, and pay and do whatever you can to get the best possible team on your 40-man or 25-man roster right now feels like it's become kind of the new market inefficiency because everyone is kind of still uh, planning down the line. And the idea, and, then, uh, and as another point in the piece is as teams are all making money, uh, the incentive not only to win now, but to even do something as basic as selling tickets is just not that big of a deal because you're making money otherwise. So uh, it, it felt in a way that, as I kind of wrote in the piece, it just felt very odd to see the, the not just that they had just won the World Series, but the idea of someone dedicated to winning now feels out of step with the times. And so I started with an idea of famously Whitey Herzog when he took over the Cardinals in 1981, had Whitey's Riverboat Gambler, Gamble where he had Raleigh Fingers on his team for like 45 minutes and, and then like shipped him off and uh, and and we got brought in Ozzie Smith that offseason and basically just completely reshuffled, traded Ted Simmons, made this crazy uh, reshuffling of the roster. Specifically, just he just wanted to win right now. And I'm hesitant of doing nostalgia uh, on these sort of things. In fact, I tried to cut back at the end of the piece and remind everyone that things weren't always so great back then either. <laughs> uh, but certainly uh, the notion of – it's one thing when you have a uh, – maybe say a columnist for like a national daily newspaper uh, playing up the idea that like baseball's too much like this. I think it's very easy to mock people like that, but it does feel very strange that the idea of having someone to come in and say, I'm going to win this team a championship as quickly as possible feels almost old fashioned. And I understand why it's old fashioned, but it's still as, 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 as a longtime baseball fan and someone that understands process, but also emotion, uh, it's a, it, it can, it can feel strange. So that was the idea of the piece. And also of course, a way to once again, talk about the Cardinals. Uh, in the first paragraph of the piece, <laughs> right. Who so, actually have nothing to do with the story. <laughs> <anyway>. <laughs> what do you think of the argument that Dave Dombrowski has one primary skill at this point in his career, which is maybe a little reductive because, He's built great teams from scratch before And presumably he still has that In his tool bag But he hasn't been called upon to do that for a while His last couple stints And a decade or more now He's been the guy who just keeps the team winning every year and trades all the prospects and signs the free agents and so forth. And so that's what he was hired to do. And he did it and mission accomplished. But then maybe he's not the guy you want for the next phase. It's like with managers where you go from the guy who's good with the young players and is a good mentor and then the team gets good and maybe you jettison that guy and you bring in the guy who then can inspire them all and and use a, a finished roster and take it to the World Series or that's the idea and you sort of ping pong between those two poles 
And so I guess you could make the analogy to, say, the free agent market where teams now are not paying for past performance anymore. They're looking at what can you do for me now? And if Dombrowski really is a guy who at this point in his career can just come in and kind of finish off a team and fill whatever remaining holes you have and trade the prospects that the previous person put in place, then maybe that's the guy that you bring in to do that one job and then you go get someone else to do the next job. Yeah, the, uh, two things to this. One, it is kind of funny to think that general managers are now going. Remember, Larry Boa was always the one on this. He was always getting <laughs> yeah. hired, and he would get the play. He would always come in after a manager who was friendly with his team, right? And he'd come in and fire them all up. And then, if, and then, and then, three years later, like we really, all the players would have these anonymous quotes. We really hate Larry Boa, and then they would bring in like someone really nice, and they would come in, and then, and that was always. It's weird to see general managers <laughs> kind of having that idea, uh, uh, which is, I guess, uh, I guess, I don't know if that's progress or not, uh, but the. Second idea of this that I, th- I find strange is a I'm not sure it exists. Uh, that's ex- Dave Dombrowski was brought in to do that job, and for the record, he did it. <laughs> like I, I would understand. It's also worth noting he did not actually win that World Series in Detroit, which is which like Whitey Herzog in the piece. It's always a good reminder your job changes when your boss is nearing death. <laughs> if you're, the timeline just becomes really quickly, and what the way you do your job changes a lot. Which I think Whitey Herzog in the same thing with Gussie Bush. But I would say that like. On one hand, I, you're right. We Dombrowski has shown he can, in fact, do that. It was also weird to say, like, well, Dombrowski, you know, he's getting so older. Like, he's at, like, 64. Like, I know that, like, like that, you know, there are, there are, like, dozens of people running for president that are, like, a decade <laughs> older than that. So right. it, it, it struck me as very strange that the idea that, like, somehow that would be seen, like, oh, in the twilight of his career, why would he want to be a part of a rebuilding project? Well, particularly with the Red Sox, because basically I think what we're looking at with the Red Sox, and I think this, I touched on this in the piece, it feels like kind of like they did with Charrington, right? Like they'll bring in someone and they'll bring in someone to rebuild the farm system and maybe they will or maybe they won't. But if they do three or four years down the line, because Boston is a lunatic media market, they'll all be like, why are we wasting our time with these young players? Just like they did with Dombrowski. And they'll bring in Dombrowski or a Dombrowski light type guy. Now, if we're saying that's what baseball general manager, if if that's what baseball is now is uh, doing that kind of flip flop back and thing, uh, maybe you'd have a point. I don't think any other team other than the Red Sox is doing this, right? Like, I don't think there's a lot of teams saying okay we've got uh, we brought in uh, uh this general manager for the next three or four years he'll build it up and then we'll get then we'll get the closer or winston wolf will come in and clean up the clean up the whole project like it feels to me that the red sox are this may have been the strategy now but like it doesn't feel like the red sox are like building up to uh, if the red sox are building up to do this in three or four years where they switch again and find another guy i don't think any other other teams in baseball are doing that i don't see a lot of other teams in baseball planning for that it feels like as i kind of said in the piece this feels like the red sox being they were the one team that was kind of very desperate in for winning right now that's not to say that the astros are not trying to win now or the dodgers are not trying to win now but like they felt like the red sox were trying are now getting with the program would be the best way to put it and becoming more and more like every front office in baseball and while i understand that there does feel it still feels like a strange thing to say okay well we're going to get this more efficient and that led into the larger point of these piece which as, as we all know it does feel like baseball efficiency has become uh as i as i, I think my exact line in the piece was uh baseball is not uh, winning is not just the only thing uh it, it, it's not winning is not the everything it's also not the only thing and maybe even not the top thing anymore and it doesn't matter as i i, I think i made the joke that uh listen it's important for your team to win uh after all how else will you convince your fans to pay for your tax breaks on your new stadium reservations <laughs> but uh, the idea that it's the most important thing feels to me the red sox are an anomaly in this in that i don't they may flip flop back and forth when other teams won't 
but it feels more that most teams are not doing that. Most teams are just more working about long-term efficiency necessarily than winning right now. I do wonder, though, if we might come to understand this as occupying a mold that's a little bit different than what you're suggesting. I mean, I think that the the Astros are the team that everyone thinks of when we think about teams that do a hard reset. And I think we all agree that Boston and its media market does not have the appetite. There's just not the intestinal fortitude anywhere on the planet, let alone there, to sort of endure a hard reset in Boston. But I think, I wonder if internally they think of themselves less in that mold and more in the mold of the Dodgers, where you do have a team that is a perennial contender. They're a powerhouse in their division. They have a a very strong farm system and player development organization that supplements that. And I think there's been an interesting sort of disconnect in the public discourse around Dombrowski, because when we think of the last Red Sox regime, you know, the regime that he replaced, there was this sense that Charrington was taking too long, right? That there was a an overemphasis on player development, that we were waiting too long for these young guys. And we can we can all talk about how reasonable a reaction that was <laughs> to what was going on there, especially for a team that managed to sort of um, luck their way into a World Series in the interim. But I wonder if we're maybe, and I'd be curious on your thoughts on this, if we are perhaps a little too early in this process to really understand exactly what it is that Boston is envisioning themselves as going forward, because isn't a possible possibility here that there is a renewed emphasis on player development, a renewed emphasis on sort of building, rebuilding the farm, coupling that with still one of the largest payrolls in baseball, maybe they think of themselves being in a slightly different group than the the one that we would worry about the most in terms of deprioritizing winning. Uh, yeah, I certainly do think they're playing. They're modeling themselves after the Dodgers, and they should. I, I'm assuming everyone has tried to model themselves after the Dodgers. The Dodgers are doing everything right. I think, uh, but I think there are two major differences there. And then I'll get into the next idea. of This one is Boston is a different market than Los Angeles, and two, they don't have Andrew Friedman. And I think that, and, and all the people that Friedman have come, has come in. Let's not forget, in like the first couple of years of Friedman, Friedman's tenure, the Dodgers wasn't there a lot of this. By the way, wasn't there a lot of like, hey, why aren't they going out and getting guys? Why why are they bringing in all of these? All of these like mid tier players instead of going and get the big names, Friedman's yeah, doing just this, what it, this past winter or yeah exactly or the trade deadline this year <laughs> yeah exactly like Friedman got a lot of that like oh well maybe that works in Tampa Bay but you got a big payroll now and now we've seen what he was doing all along. If Boston uh, surprises me and shows to have the patience to do that again, uh, I sure that's I'm sure that's what they want to be. Uh, but I also feel like again uh, as I do with a lot of my pieces, the Dombrowski thing is both my, the point I'm making and also a long into a larger discussion, which is, uh, the, as I talk about in the piece, the Cubs and the Astros are the way, are, they're the reason, like in a lot of ways, this is all happening, right? Like obviously these things are all progression, but basically the Cubs and the Astros were able to take this competitive reset and come back and build these monsters. The Cubs monster did not quite turn out the way they wanted to, but the Astros monster seems to be going uh, very, very well. So I think what you've seen, I use the Pirates as the best example of this, but I think there's a lot of teams that have a little bit uh, of the, I think every front office has a little bit, bit of this, is this idea of like, they can point to their fans and they can say, look what the Cubs and Astros did. So don't worry. We don't need to go out and spend a lot of money right now or we don't need to like try to win. We can kick the ball down the can, kick the can down the road, kick the ball down the can, whatever you're kicking in whatever hill or <laughs> or, 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 or piece of territory or geographical land that is going over to, around is what I'm trying to say. They are uh, push it down the road a little bit and then don't worry because look, it works. Look at what the Astros did. Look at what the Cubs did. And I think what that can happen, I think there was uh, uh, I think what can happen there is I think 
sense of what's happening with Pittsburgh, right? Like you're, you're promised this great future. And then when it comes, you don't follow up on it. To me, the great thing, one of the great things the Astros have done is not just take those years where you reset, but then when it became time to spend, because remember when the Astros were not spending money, they said the entire time, we're banking this money, but we will spend when it's time. And they kind of have, right? They've kind of done that. Like, we can all argue maybe they should have spent more. Maybe they could have gone after this guy. But generally speaking, I feel like the Astros have invested a lot of that money that they saved back in the team. I'm not sure. I think I think that uh, uh, people want to model the Astros plan in the reset and build up young prog- uh, prospects type of way. I'm not sure they always want to do in the, yes, but when it comes time, let's spend when it comes time to do that. And I think that is that to me is uh, it's less an indictment of the Red Sox and more an indictment of what the Red Sox are trying to do in a macro sense, which is become like the rest of baseball. And right now, I would argue the rest of baseball feels less Dombrowski or, or Herzog then uh, then let's uh, make sure – this comes out to the general lack of urgency, right? Like at a certain level, teams are making money. <laughs> like their teams are making a lot of money. And because and, and uh, in the past, if you needed to make more money, you would try to get a better team so more t- people would come to your games and buy more things and spend more money and, be, and you get postseason games. That sort of money is like oh, – it's not irrelevant. No money is irrelevant. But certainly they're doing – they're making a lot of money in other ways that – the actual number I wrote about this for New York Magazine a couple months ago, and Neil DeMuse wrote about it for Deadspin a few weeks ago. The idea of the fact that people are not coming to games, are coming to games fewer, and this is not just in baseball, but I think in all sports. But I think baseball cares less about it because they don't need their money's not coming from those guys, and so therefore they don't need to spend as much they're, because they're making money now, and thus there's not as much urgency to win than maybe the, the way there would have been in the past. Yeah, I think there's only so much you can read into any one firing or hiring because you never know in any individual. Right case, whether they're off the field issues or frayed relationships or front office dysfunction. I mean, there have been a couple articles, Evan Drellick and Peter Gammons wrote about the Red Sox front office and how there was a perception mm-hmm. that maybe Dabrowski had a, a couple favorites like Tony La Russa and Frank Wren and other people didn't feel included and a lot of other executives left to go to other teams since he was hired and, and so on. But I think if you read Alex Spears homegrown, which is about how this Red Sox team came together, largely under Ben Charrington. I think Dombrowski sort of portrayed as the guy whose skill is finishing it off. As we were saying, he's the guy who can make that big move. And as you read about it, it just seems like he's kind of the one who will put that extra prospect in the trade that (laughs) the other team won't. So he'll say, yeah, I'll give you Yohan Mankata and... Then I'll get Chris Sale, and that worked out well, and Mankata is a really very good player now. But if that's the primary skill, if the primary skill is I'm the guy who will give the biggest package of prospects, I'm the guy who will offer the biggest contract, we need a starting pitcher, I'll go get David Price, I'll get Chris Sale an extension, etc., I don't know if that's the best skill or most valuable skill that a GM can have. I guess there's a skill in persuading ownership to spend that money or or okay that move. But as far as just being the guy who can be the high bidder and offer the most money or, or the most prospects, that seems like a more replaceable skill, I guess, than 
building it up than being the Charrington who finds the prospects that Dombrowski then comes in and gives away. And maybe that's oversimplifying it. I don't know. I I said that you can't read that much into any one move. I I do think that this sort of reflects some trends that we're seeing in the game as a whole, and it's not just this one firing. And I do wonder how other GMs and executives will look at this and look at their own jobs and think, well, gee, if Dave Dombrowski can build one of the most successful teams of all time and win a World Series and then get fired, then I better not do that because it doesn't give you any job security. What gives you job security is stockpiling prospects and and being efficient so i do see that but on the other hand i just i don't know maybe dombrowski was able to build teams with the expos or with the marlins but can he still do that in today's game when player development has changed so dramatically and he hasn't really been called upon to do that for decades at this point i don't know well i i would say uh again i agree that like uh you keep your job job longer by Kicking again, whatever I said you would kick or whatever thing it would roll down. Uh, I think that's true. But I have to say one thing I would argue that is rather marketable about Dombrowski's skill is that he won a World Series by going and actually making all of these things. And I think that they'll still don't call me old fashioned with my play and my record players to make the kids go to sleep. But like uh, it's I think that does kind of matter a little bit. And I would argue this. Dombrowski is. I, I agree. I agree that the best way to uh, th- it might not be best practices to have a to just constantly have a Dombrowski. We saw what happened. In, uh, that's still going on in Detroit. Like clearly, they they went way too long there, and we saw what happened. I think we could argue the Phillies had that maybe where they went a year too long earlier uh, as well. The Tigers are definitely the worst example of that. But I have to say again, you do eventually have to do it right. Like what I'd like to see, what I would have liked to have seen, for example, is let's say Dombrowski is the closer, right? Like I think clean teams. Do you think we can argue whether or not the Red Sox would have won a World Series if they they just stayed with Charrington? They would certainly still have Moncada. <laughs> I don't think there's any question about that. But like, would they have won a World Series? Now, obviously, these are hypotheticals. We never know really the answer to them. But it's hard to argue the Red Sox were not in a better position to win a World Series in 2018 because Dombrowski was there. And I do kind of think that matters a little bit. So, you know, I I, I do uh, maybe Dombrowski is just this floating around guy that comes around and and he's he's the uh he's the Kawhi uh Leonard of of uh, general manager. He just floats from city to city and uh, t- takes teams that couldn't get their act together, gets it and then rides out of town uh um unlike past uh, uh Red Sox employees not in a gorilla costume, but still like sneaks out uh the back. I wonder if there's value in that, right? Like cuz I st- there's got to be some sort of value in someone that is actually doing something a little bit different because that's how all this started, right? <laughs> that's how so all of this got going in the first place. So I do think that, sure, uh, I think what you're going to see is if, if everyone is just concentrating on valuing prospects and everyone's just concentrating on, 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 on long-term competitiveness, I think this is something that's actually, I'm sure we'll get into a Cardinals conversation, I think this is something that's hurt the Cardinals a little bit in the last year because that's always been their plan, right? Perpetual contention. Uh, don't, that's why they got rid of Walt Jockety back in the day because he was, he was kind of Dombrowski. He would trade, make big trades and that would make the, get the team going and ultimately they realized that was not sustainable. I, and I agree, but like, 
right now, eventually some of these teams that are building and, and focusing on prospects, they're not going to win. <laughs> they're not going to win. There's like If everyone's going this way, someone's not going to do it. And I do think there's value in someone of a fresh set of eyes that comes in and says, you know what? You are too close to this guy. You are too close. Like I, I, I like Milan Mancata. I think he's a terrific player. I don't think a single Red Sox per, uh, fan would not read, would not do that trade immediately. Mm-hmm. And and maybe in five years, maybe in five years from now, and maybe and maybe you're right. Maybe it's a series of Charringtons to Dombrowskis, and that's the new plan. But I doubt it. I bet it's more just Charringtons now. And listen, I don't mean to be a Charrington. Obviously, did a great job, but I do think that if you if if it's just people that are constantly building to the future, and no one that comes in and says, okay. Let's try to do it now to have that specialist to do that. Maybe that's what it is, but I, I have a feeling that's not really what's going to happen. I just think it's going to be a bunch of people kicking whatever thing down whatever hill. <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder. I kind of was thinking about it as almost like a sacrifice bunting analogy. Like there are certain situations where it makes sense to lay down a sacrifice bunt because you're playing for one run and all you need is one run. And there are cases where a sacrifice bunt can increase your chances of scoring one run. But it also decreases your chances of scoring multiple runs and maybe decreases your run expectancy. And that doesn't always matter. Sometimes you just need that one run and you'll win or you need to tie to keep the game going. And that's fine. But there are a lot of times then when it's counterproductive because usually you want to score as many runs as possible. And so you write, and you're not the only one making this argument. I probably made it myself, maybe. But you say in many ways spending now and not building for the future to win now has become the new market in efficiency. And I think there's some truth to that. It's like if you're a contending team, you can go and get guys from the rebuilding team. And if you're a rebuilding team, you can go and get guys from the contending team and and it's different guys and you're willing to make different moves and so you can benefit both sides and I think if you decide that we want to win right now we care about this one year then that is an advantage because you will be willing to give up that prospect that the other team's not going to give up but then does that come back to bite you and can you count on actually turning that into a World Series now the Red Sox did and so I'm sure they would do everything that they did all over again because it worked out but can you count on it working out especially in a game where you've got 30 teams you've got three full playoff rounds you've got the wild card game now so even if you decide we're going to go all out and pull out all the stops and build the best team we can to win right now you can't really count on that translating into a world series if it does then you're brilliant and if it doesn't, then maybe you're left yeah. with a, a depleted roster the rest of the the, you're the Tigers or the Blue Jays, right? Yeah, yeah right. Tig- and, yeah, right. And right. you you look at like the the teams that have won the most games in this decade are the Yankees and the Dodgers, and maybe one of them will win this year. But to this point, neither of them has won a World Series. And certainly, you'd rather have the Red Sox decade than the Yankees or the Dodgers decade because they won zero World Series and the Red Sox have won two. But if you could redo the decade, if you could simulate the decade a thousand times, would the Red Sox win more World Series in the typical timeline than the Yankees and the Dodgers do? I don't know. Or are we just looking at it and saying, well, it worked out, but the Red Sox were the most successful team last year. I don't know that they were necessarily the best team, and it very easily could have turned into a situation where they had some regular season success, and then they got knocked out in the playoffs, and then suddenly 
you're left with the highest payroll and some of these contracts that haven't worked out thus far, and you don't have that ring and that flag flying forever. Yeah, but I I know as a and for the record, this is a bad example to use when we're talking about the Red Sox. But fans generally like it and are happier when you are trying when they can see that you're trying to win. And I do think that matters. I think it comes back again. Red Sox fans are never happy at all, so that's a really bad example. But uh, but generally speaking, I will say I think this is something that does get a little lost when we talk about this. Uh, is the idea that like you do actually have customers and <laughs> you actually have customers that I think that there is value not just in the short term but in the very long term of actually, you know, showing that you're trying to win a little bit. And I don't and I think right now this goes back to my idea of urgency and incentive. Right now I don't think that baseball ownership is incentivized to worry about the right now because mm-hmm. things are fine right now. Things are going really well right now and there's tons of money throughout baseball right now and they've just got this big bam tech check and there's all this all this money coming in. And so because of that when, when there's that much money coming in, the idea of like I'll put it this way, Bill Veck is never a, a general manager who's like throwing out every stop he can to attract every uh, every fan base he can every fan that he can if they're making a ton of money otherwise and and uh, they don't have to worry about competing like i think there's 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 not a major incentive for owners to worry about getting more fans in the ballpark and making mm-hmm. more money and so because of that there is a like sure you can promise me that you're going to try to build something for me to win someday but I don't, I mean, sure, that might not have worked for the Red Sox. It also might not work for the Dodgers, right? <laughs> like they have not won a World Series. It might not work. This is the Phillies fear, right? They had that stretch where they took a step back and they still haven't made the playoffs. Now, I think there are reasons for that. It, you can't, certainly can't argue the Phillies haven't uh, spent in some ways. But I think that, that when you're continuously saying we're building something efficient uh, and it will pay off later, that strikes me not as not that different of a bet or that different of a asking your fans to trust you than it is saying we're going to go right now and maybe it's going to be bad later maybe it's going to be bad i don't know but we know we're trying to win right now i uh, certainly the former is a better long-term plan but again that doesn't guarantee success any more than trying to go right now does i would argue I do wonder a year from now where we're going, how we're going to look at this Red Sox team because, the, I mean, they obviously have some difficult choices. They are making them difficult for themselves, right? If this team wanted to sign bets to an extension, they could just decide to not care about the luxury tax. So we should say that up front. But this team will in all likelihood look pretty similar to what it does uh, this time next year. Uh, and I I do look at them as sort of a interesting Rorschach test for where we think Think baseball is headed because there's a, a not small likelihood that this team, which is not playing terribly, right? They're 10 games over 500 or whatever, is going to find themselves in playoff contention next year with a new general manager. And I wonder what our impression of this moment in their franchise history will be if a year from now we're getting ready for October baseball and the Red Sox are going to be maybe not the uh, AL East champions because it seems like the Yankees aren't going to move from that spot without a good fight, but back in a wild card race and then finding themselves um, playing deep into October. And I wonder where we will Uh, think they're headed and what we will think of this move if that's where they end up a year from now because they're still going to have one of the largest payrolls in baseball they're still going to have most of this team and hopefully if they can figure out something to do with that starting rotation perhaps they're in a totally different spot uh, next year than they are now 
Yeah, the the time where we see the Red Sox go through a Royals esque desert in between yeah. uh, is it's hard to imagine that happening, right? And and even if it's the most efficient thing for them to do, and I I do wonder if we are uh, allowing the Red Sox, who are let's face it, a pretty tumultuous organization, sure. <laughs> like there's all sorts of madness over there. Right. I wonder whether or not we are letting the Red Sox stand in for something larger in sports when it's actually just a weird Red Sox thing, right? <laughs> and so and I I've wondered that throughout this process also because they are almost certainly not, as you said, about to go embark on either a hard rebuild or a long, prolonged period of, of non-contention given what they still have on the roster now. So it's going to be, uh, I wonder I wonder how we'll feel a year from now. <laughs> I don't know. Let's see. Ask me, how's, ask me how the election's going. And, uh, sure, and yeah. We, we might not be worried about baseball at all. <laughs> I, I, it is funny as a, as a fan of a, a franchise that hasn't been to the postseason in so long that their postseason drought can drive without other people in the car for um, for fans of this team to be complaining about the possibility of yeah. missing the the postseason for one right. year. Theoretically, yeah. theoretically, of course. <laughs> right. Yeah, I guess it comes back to that question of how do you define success in baseball and what's your goal? I mean, everyone's goal is to win the World Series. Right. But how do you do that? Is winning seven consecutive division titles winning? Is that success? That seems pretty successful. You put a, a compelling product on the field. That that hasn't translated to a World Series win yet, but there's just so much randomness and chance involved in converting a great regular season team into a World Series winner that if you tell me that I can build you a division winner every year, I'm going to sign up for that because you do that enough times and it should translate into a World Series or at least you put yourself in that position. And so yeah, I don't know. Are you going to win the division every year? I mean, <laughs> sure, I can, you can promise me that. That sounds great. But right. I'm not yeah. sure that's that. Like that's everyone's, making, too. Yeah, everyone's making that promise, right? Yeah. Sure. Right. Yeah. And I, I do think this is – it's obviously about – efficiency, which is code for spending less and, and winning as many games or more games. I'm sure that if John Henry thinks that he can find someone who can build just as good a team for $150 million in payroll as Dave Nebrowski can for $250 million, then he will happily sign up for that. But I think that it is also partly about when you do build a, a homegrown core, Yes, that is absolutely about saving money because young players are not paid anything close to what they're worth these days. But also, I think it's that you can count on those guys to be good for several years. So if you bring up Mookie Betts and Raphael Devers and Jackie Bradley and Andrew Benintendi and Xander Bogarts all at once... Those guys, you know they're going to be good for several years. And yes, they're also going to be affordable. But there's really something to be said for knowing that we've got this team that, you know, just starting with these homegrown guys, we can sort of fill in around the edges and we can make trades and we can sign guys. But you can do that because you have these guys who come up when they're 21 and they're largely good right away and you can just plan for the future because you know that five, six years down the road, these guys are still going to be there and still going to be good, which you just can't really do with free agents, even if you are willing to spend on them, especially now that everyone's signing extensions and you can't even count on free agents being there. So 
it's absolutely about money, but I think there is also an element where it's about that dependability and predictability of knowing that you have, say, half of a winning team that you can count on for the next half decade before you do anything else. I, I guess, but I feel like the Pirates were kind of this like four or five years ago, right? Like we all felt like, I remember in 13, that Pirates team felt like, wow, they are not going away. And then they went away. <laughs> right, <laughs> and, yeah. and a lot of that was because they didn't get any support, right? They they built, and I go, the, to me, I think the Pirates, the Pirates are my way of cheating a little bit <laughs> because yeah. I feel like they are the example of like, of the, they are the actual worst case of the pro, uh, scenario of the problem that I'm potentially subscribing this, uh, prescri- that may not actually happen to everyone, but the Pirates Pirates feel like the example of that happening. They have all the, and this is the fear. Like this is what you liked about San Diego signing Machado, right? Like that's what you want yeah, is to be right. to, to be able to make that step forward. The question is, how many teams are actually going to do that? When we've seen the free free agent market, I I, I don't know if they're actually going to do that. I was going to say the Pir- Pirates fans would would love a hundred and fifty million dollar payroll yes. problem. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't muddle yourselves on Pirates or, yeah. or the Pirates ownership. No. <laughs> so we should transition to. St. Louis now and I, I do sort of have a, a segue because <laughs> Rob Arthur wrote something about Dombrowski for Baseball Prospectus on Friday and he looked back the past few decades of GM history and he found that Dombrowski's firing is essentially unprecedented in that time. Someone who had had so much regular season success who had so recently won a World Series for him to be fired that just hasn't happened. But he pointed out that probably the best recent comp for that is Walt Jockety, former Cardinals GM, who was fired less than a year after the Cardinals won the 2006 World Series. And granted, that 2006 team was not nearly as good as the 2018 Red Sox, and the 2007 Cardinals were not as good as the 2019 Red Sox. But do you see any parallels there? And does that tell us anything about what might happen in Boston or or these trends? Because as you were saying, maybe this has been a problem for the Cardinals just trying to contend every year, but not going all out in any one year. Yeah, I think that I think the parallel it's not it's not one to one, but it certainly makes some sense. I also feel like it's worth remembering that for all this talk of Tony Larusa being this like old time crusty baseball guy that never listens to anything, he him and Jockety were like best, but they came in together like and he survived. He's the one that was okay with them making that transition to uh, John Mozeliak and Jeff Luna, who I think obviously was brought in to 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 change that whole system. I think the analogy is a little bit there, but I think part of, I think it's le- I think certainly the 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 Cardinals' ownership team. Uh, Bill DeWitt and and uh, and all the other various Cardinals, uh, St. Louis area investors who are now are making so much money off Ballpark Village, which will be coming that again they will ultimately forget they have a baseball team altogether. But I do think that they um, having Jock the, the deal with Jockey, it wasn't just that he didn't seem to be down with like player development. The whole strategy for for Jockety was these trades, and they they were incredible trades to get to get Jim Edmonds for Kent Bottenfield, to get uh, Scott Rowland for for to Plas, for Plasto Polanco, who by the way I love some Plasto Polanco. We were born on the same day in 1975, so uh, I'm always I'm, I'm sure he's got a comeback left in him. Um, and uh, so the end of the Mark McGuire trade would be another good example. Is like clearly they you know they that the Cardinals had gotten so much success from that from those trades that that seemed to be only the strategy at that point and 
really what happened sure he got fired after they won after they after they won a world series but he really got fired after the mark Mulder trade the cardinals made a trade for mark Mulder, where they traded away dan heron and uh and, and who before there was twitter dan heron was actually a really good pitcher too <laughs> and a really exciting young pitcher and uh and and, and that clearly cost the Cardinals uh, uh, that trade and Mulder was hurt and it was a veteran exactly the risk that it was one of those trades that didn't pan out and I think that started to kind of turn the tide a little bit on uh, on kind of on, on Jockey so but Jock, th- there had been disagreements already happening and it's worth knowing that DeWitt for all for whatever uh, issues I, I think he may have now and I think they're minor but I think that uh, he did he did look see something ahead of time which was listen we need to the, the great example I always say is after the Cardinals won the World Series in 2006, they had the worst farm system in baseball. And after they won it in 2011, they had the best farm system in baseball. Like, that's a cool five-year stretch of being a fan right there. Yeah. Like, that's nice when that happens. And and a lot of that is because Lunau and them coming in. But that was DeWitt recognizing, uh, as I've, I wrote this in, in the Baseball Perspectives Annual a couple of years ago, a lot of that move was actually based around Albert Pujols. Mm-hmm. Because Pools actually was coming up, but they knew his free agency was coming in five years. They wanted to make him stay unusual, and they wanted, and they realized that they needed to keep costs down. Not necessarily just because he wanted to keep costs down, though that's always a nice bonus. It's that they knew this huge check was coming for Albert Pools, and if they kept paying all of these, all of this money for these other guys, it wasn't going to work. So they were going to have to get these cost-effective guys like a Matt Carpenter, or like a uh, like a Alan Craig at the time. Those guys were going to have to be the guys, the, the complementary pieces around around Albert Pujols so they could afford to pay Albert Pujols. Ultimately, that worked out perfectly for the Cardinals on both sides because they did not have to pay that money to Albert Pujols. But that was the driving influence of them changing that because they wanted, they knew that Albert Pujols, had they'd gotten him so cheap for the first half of his career, they knew they were going to have to pay big for him. This is why this there's this myth that the Cardinals were like, oh, we're being so smart about not signing Albert Pujols. Like they desperately wanted to keep Albert Pujols and just kind of lucked out that the Angels uh, went so insanely high. But So I think that was a driving influence too, was the way Jockety was running the Cardinals was in a way that was going to make it incredibly difficult, in DeWitt's mind anyway, to be able to afford Albert Pujols. And so they had to change their entire system with 2011 in mind. Now, again, this is another example of what we're talking about earlier. Whatever your long-term plans are, weird things keep happening to make them all turn and go off course. And so it ultimately worked out out in a very strange, positive way for the Cardinals, but not in the way they could have anticipated. Right. Yeah. Well, we're seeing some of that weirdness uh, with this Cardinals team on July. Let's see if I can navigate this quickly enough. On July 2nd, which was the sort of nadir of their playoff odds for us at Fangraphs, we had them having a 17.7% chance of making the postseason. And that has, of course, since rocketed all the way up to 91.1% today, September 12th, or the 13th, excuse me. And so I'm wondering, how do you account for this Cardinals team, Will? Because they don't seem to do anything especially well, (laughs) or at least they haven't for long stretches of this season. They are playing, obviously, much better defense in the second half, which has certainly helped. They are getting some standout uh, second half performances, especially on the pitching side. But how do you account for this uh, this 2019 Cardinals team? If I can piggyback on that, I I think... Craig Edwards wrote about them this week, and he noted that they were a 500 team at the 
All-Star break. At that point, they had an 11% shot at the division. And one of the reasons we wanted to have you on to talk about them is that we really haven't talked about them at all, which (laughs) maybe you've noticed as an effectively wild listener. (laughs) But I think it's been easy to overlook them, A, because they just seemed pretty mediocre for much of the season. And even if you look now at, say, the full season stats, it's like they have a roughly average offense and a roughly average pitching staff. And at least according to Fangraph's war, they don't have a single four-war player. And so there's no really attention-getting superstar, at least on a full-season basis, that you have to talk about. And yet only the Yankees have more wins in the second half of the season, and they've got a four-game lead in the division with not many games to go. So, yeah, what happened here? Well, uh, there, there was a there was a, a couple things, and frankly, a lot of these things have to do with the Cubs, <laughs> and a lot of these things <laughs> do with the Brewers. To be entirely honest, I think that uh, certainly the Cardinals were not a, a great team in the in the first half. That that was when it got really dark. I feel like at the All Star break, not only did the Cardinals, and I do a podcast every week with Bernie Miklas, the longtime columnist for the St. Louis Post Dispatch, called Seeing Red. We just yammer about this, and uh, um, and it is completely unobjective. <laughs> just mostly, I'm either crying or cheering into the microphone once a week, and um, but. Uh, so we're doing a lot these days, but I, the thing that's interesting that we kind of noticed is at the all-star break, they only had one, the Cardinal, there were two teams that ne- didn't have an all-star picked by either the players or the, or the fans. It was the Cardinals and the Marlins, which is always a <laughs> wonderful place to be. Uh, and so Paul DeYoung was the only one chose. And like part of that was because Goldschmidt had a slow first half. Ozuna had a slow, had, had a slow first half, but it really, you know, the thing that that's really helped the Cardinals in the second half have been two things. One, the schedule, to be honest, it's like completely like the, the Cardinals, I think, went to a stretch in August where they played I, uh, they, at the beginning of August they played the Dodgers and the A's on the road and got swept and it really felt like as dark as it was going to go they lost five in a row and then they got the Pirates and the Reds and the Marlins and the Pirates again and they really just went through this stretch where they were able to just really beat up on bad teams and like actively beat up on them if you look at the Cardinals August they uh, the only team they played that was halfway decent was the Brewers and that was when the Brewers were actually going through their, their major their, their dip. So uh, they've, they've benefited from the schedule, which is good because right now, theoretically, that's what the Cubs are about to do. The Cubs mm-hmm. basically only have one winning team the rest of the way, and it's the Cardinals who they have seven games with, and the Cardinals have yet to win at Wrigley Field this year. So uh, that, that's something, I, the idea that this race is over, I think, is is pretty foolish. But I would say that uh, the, I think the Cardinals have really done better is the thing that and I we, we when we refer to the Cardinals former manager on seeing red we uh we mentioned he had that I shall not be named but I'm gonna go ahead and say because I'm not on that podcast uh uh what kind of happened with Mike Matheny I think during his run with the Cardinals there were a lot all sorts of things going on but one of the major things there was just general sloppiness in both base running and in defense and I think there's a great piece by Derek Gould this week in the post dispatch talking about how the Cardinals if one thing the Cardinals have done is they are actively shifting so much more than they have at any other time in the last 10 years. And and that's, I know shifting is, we can all d- d- discuss uh, uh, the efficient ways to shift and so on. But like the idea that Mike Schilt has basically come in and all the stuff that, that Matheny was hesitant about and was frankly often at the front odds with the front office about he's kind of brought into practice it's this wonderful little detail of stubby clap yes stubby clap stubby clap and willie mcgee physically cutting out with uh sharing a pair of scissors to cut out the cards 
and hand to the players for the defensive shift. Uh, they, they basically have a color code system that I imagined an intern would do, but apparently they got Cardinals legend Willie McGee and nomenclature uh, legend Stubby Clapp to physically do for them. Uh, and I, I th- there's just been a clear cleaning up in in the in the defense of the base running, and it's led to just uh, pretty terrific run prevention. Uh, certainly, uh, you've seen up the middle. I think the indicative of the player the, uh, of what the Cardinals are is probably Colton Wong. Colton Wong is a player, particularly under Matheny, uh, was kind of yanked out of the lineup back and forth. Dexter Fowler always talked about this as well. He's another guy that's had, a, had this great year. But Wong has always been this terrific def- defensive player. But now he, he's been moved up to second in the lineup. Like he was betting... He, he would have been put 10th for a long part of the last couple of years or yanked out of the lineup at all. He has like become this steadying influence. I think Paul Goldschmidt, for he hasn't had the offensive season he'd like, but every single Cardinal, uh, particularly on the infield, talks about how just on the whole, the defense has been cleaned up having him there. And, and, and you know, they were playing Jose Martinez and Matt Carpenter the last couple of years. That's made a huge difference. But I really think why they're so hot in August and September, they're, they're beating really bad teams in, in, in all seriousness. And, that's that's about to stop. You know they've got uh, they've got the Brewers this weekend. Uh, everyone they play the rest of the year has a winning record. So they've built this four game lead uh, by by being cleaner. But listen, the Cardinals are projected to a to uh, have a worse record than all the t- than both the Brewers and the Cubs when they finished first and second in the division last year. The Cardinals are winning the division, but a lot of that is because the Cubs have taken a pretty big step back, and uh, so have the Brewers. And so the Cardinals have benefited from that. They're roughly around where they were last year, a little bit better. But the but the in the division uh, the 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 Brewers and Cubs have stepped back enough, and there's no and the Pirates and Reds have not been a factor at all. The Red, the Reds the Reds are kind of their own story of how disappointing this year's been for them. But they haven't been enough of a threat. The Cardinals have just been able to take advantage. One guy I do want to ask about in particular who has has seemingly followed this trend of like a second half resurgence has been Jack Flaherty. We had you know his first half FIP was 473, which is not something you really write home about. And that number has come down substantially. He's writing a 218 FIP in the second half. His case per nine are up. Strikeout rate, walk rate is down. What have you seen change for him? Or is it just sort of adjusting and, and finding sort of a new way forward? Yeah, a lot of it, uh, there's a, Derek Gould, another good piece on this. Everyone follow Derek Gould. He's great. He, next, time, <laughs> next time I'm talking about the Cardinals, he is great. You, sh- you should probably just have him on because he uh, <laughs> he's great and he talks a lot slower. Um, and, but but, uh, but we get so much more in with you. Yeah, yes, fast, that's fast, true. fast. <laughs> yeah, definitely. This is the. I, I think every time I'm on, I think I've actually seen this on the Facebook group before. Like, yep, Leech is on. Time to go to the half speed. Uh, time to go to the half speed on that one, <laughs> so we can understand what in the hell he is saying. But I would say that uh, a lot of it has been fastball placement. Uh, okay. it, it basically, it is you know he's always had he unless he's always had flashes, right? And I think sure. he was actually even when he there were games this year in the in the beginning of the year where he would pitch pretty well and then give up a couple homers to me the big number is the home run rate that's been down in the second half uh, that's been way down uh, uh, really that's actually kind of a key for the whole Cardinals staff in a, in a home run happy year the Cardinals are actually one of the best teams at preventing homers I think that even Adam Wainwright is giving up one home run per nine innings like that is that is uh, that's not something you expect when they're 94 years old and uh, and can't they're faster than 85 miles an hour anymore and I say that out of love for Adam Wainwright but I think uh, for me what Flaherty has done uh, one pitcher, the pitch, former Cardinal pitcher that he reminds 
Alliance people love, he's actually worked a lot of with is Chris Carpenter. Uh, Chris sure. Carpenter, who uh, and th- there's a lot of similarities between the two of them. He's throwing a lot of strikes and he's throwing a lot of strikes with fastballs. And I think that has kind of been the key for him. He's always been able to do that, but there is a certain um, uh, aggression that he's had. I think uh, clearly in the second half, and it's built on itself, right? I mean, he is legitimately one of those pitchers right now. I think he's taken no hitters into the fifth inning like four times in the second half. Like he's real, like and and again. Whatever, no hitters, but it's still cool when it's happening. And it feels, sure. it, it definitely has no hit stuff when it goes on. And so, uh, it's been exciting to see, uh, Bernie and I on the podcast just like a month and a half ago were saying, if there was some theoretical planet where the Cardinals made the wild card game, who would start game one? And we decided that if it was on the road, it would be Miles Michaelis. And if it was on the at home, it would be Adam Wainwright, which is to say, this has hap- come on us very quickly. Sure. Uh, uh, Flaherty now obviously is the first guy you would have in, in, in he, he stepped up and been able to do that. And they've wanted him to do that for a while, but uh, he's clearing a show. Now, another pitcher, frankly, that's been terrific for the Cardinals in the second half, too, is Dakota Hudson. Dakota Hudson has been excellent for the Cardinals. He has stepped up in a way. You know, at the deadline, Cardinal fans were really upset that they didn't make a trade for a starter for all the offensive problems they had this year. It really felt, and they, they still need a fifth starter. Michael Walker is throwing like two to three innings a game, even when he's pitching well. They clearly don't try, which is probably not the best thing for his free agent case, by the way. He's a free agent at the end of the year. He's like, I don't need wins, but let me throw three innings uh, before I, before <laughs> you take me out. But uh, I, on the whole, I still feel like there's an innings gap. They were just trying to make it September and have some of their cops. The bullpen has been terrific too. I feel like uh, even even guys like uh, like Carlos Martinez in the last couple in the last couple of weeks has really stepped up. They've got a lot of success from those guys. But really, having Flaherty give you seven or eight innings of dominant pitching uh, every five, every four or five days has changed kind of the whole complexion of the bullpen and the, and the rotation in a way that has kind of kept it rolling. Yeah, and defense is easy to overlook, but boy, up the middle defense doesn't yeah. get better than Molina, DeYoung, Wong, and Harrison Bader. I mean, that is about as good as you can get at catching the ball, both in the outfield and, and as a catcher, and then converting double plays, which they've done really well. So that's one of those things that kind of goes under the radar, and that's been a big factor in the AO wildcard race, too, because Cleveland and Oakland and Tampa Bay, all those teams are great at defense, too. So last thing, according to the Fangrass playoff odds right now, the Cardinals have about a 77 percent chance to win the division does that feel right to you because as you were saying it is a pretty scary rest of the schedule normally you'd feel pretty good about a four game lead with 16 games to go but you've got the brewers this weekend then the nationals then four against the cubs then the diamondbacks then three more against the cubs to end the season so not only exclusively good teams but also mostly the teams that you are facing in the division race right now so what's your level of anxiety oh my level of anxiety it's always very high uh, yeah listen it has been four years since the Cardinals made the playoffs. Oh, you know what it drop Meg, you know what it's like. Meg, yeah. you know what it's like. You know what it's like. It's hard. Uh-huh. So uh <laughs> so like clearly Call me when your drought's about to go to college. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in dog years. Um sure. and uh, <laughs> but uh yeah, so I feel like uh uh I think Clearly, they've struggled a lot in September over the last couple of years. I think that they, there have been times uh, they were really they had one they were terrific in August after they fired Matheny and brought in Schilt, and then they kind of ran out of gas. I think the team is better constructed than they were last year. They're in a better position. They they're certainly more stable in the rotation than they were. Like they had Austin Gomber and Daniel Ponce de Leon taking like huge starts for them uh, down the stretch last year. They're in a much better position this year. Uh, I think it helps that on one hand, yes, wow, they're playing all these winning teams. 
to me, I mean, the Cubs are without Javier Baez and the Brewers are without Christian Yelich. Like that <laughs> yeah. is a nice yeah. place to be at when, when you even when you're playing all those teams. And the, you're, obviously, the National, the Dimex, those are tough games, and we'll see what happens the Brewers series. But it, I'll put it this way: uh, yes, uh, four games is a, a, and I have some anxiety. But if you can't hang on to a four-game lead over the Brewers who have lost Christian Yelich and the Cubs who have lost Javier Baez, I do think that maybe the team was not that well-constructed in the first place. Uh, They've been able to count on the Cubs and Brewers taking a step back all year. I know the Brewers are hot right now, and they're clearly coming in with a a, a great spot in that series. I don't think anyone's actually going to argue that the Brewers are a better team without Christian Yelich, even in a a small sample size the rest of the season. So uh, I feel um, cautiously... Terrified. Let's go with that. Let's go with cautiously terrified. <laughs> okay. Well, you can find Will almost everywhere, but particularly at MLB.com and New York Magazine and on Twitter at William F. Leach. He will grudgingly tweet from time to time. <laughs> and you can write him a letter. If you don't like something he said, just send him a letter and he will actually send you a letter back. That is a thing that he does. And you can get the address to mail him at by subscribing to his newsletter, which you should be doing anyway. That is at Tiny letter.com slash William F. Leach. So thank you as always and good luck surviving the next couple of weeks. Of course. And reminder, the newsletter is free. I would never ever yes. ask someone to pay for my <laughs> ramblings about Whitey Herzog. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Right. Thanks, Will. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Okay, that will do it for this week. Thanks to you all for listening. And thanks to those of you who are supporting the podcast on Patreon. You can be one of those people too. Just go to patreon.com slash effectivelywild and sign up to pledge some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get yourself access to some perks as have Justice Sat, Rob Stillwell, Nick Bounds, Jonathan Daw, James Woodson. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcast at or via the Patreon listing system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. You can buy my book, The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players. Your ratings and reviews of the book are appreciated too. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you early next week. Every day